I have built relationships with some really wonderful theaters. I've had my plays produced at some wonderful theaters. I have had my work produced consistently. I work consistently. And for me, that feels like success. From Indiana Public Radio, this is Pop of Culture. This week, we talked to a playwright who moved from New York City to the top of a mountain. We'll also visit a corner market in Muncie hosting local bands. And we walked in to set up for the night, and I said, are we playing in a grocery store? All that coming up from IPR. Pop of Culture on IPR is made possible in part by the Indiana Arts Commission, a state agency, the IAC's arts partner for East Central Indiana, the Community Foundation of Randolph County, the National Endowment for the Arts, a federal agency, and by Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. This is Indiana Public Radio, and you're listening to Pop of Culture. My name is Jennifer Blackmer, and I am your co-host. And I am also your co-host, Kara Duquette. We are so excited to be here. This is our very first episode. We are here today because of you, our audience. You told us that you wanted more arts programming, and Pop of Culture will do just that. You're going to learn what's happening here in your community in Muncie, East Central Indiana, and beyond. But because this is public radio, we're going to go deeper. We are going to look into the process of making art. We're going to talk with a variety of artists in all kinds of fields, theater, music, dance, film. We'll meet painters, sculptors, and makers of all kinds. We will learn what challenges them and inspires them. We're going to take this voyage with them and talk to them about uh, why they do what they do, what motivates them and brings them joy, and how they engage with their community. And you will be engaging with them as well. We're going to learn what makes the Midwest a great place to be an artist. And we will meet some incredible folks along the way. Let's get started with Phil Hoffman, who steps into the Common Market at 8th and Hoyt in Muncie, Indiana, to talk with Mike Martin, the owner. We're joined today by Mike Martin, who is the owner of the Common Market. And Mike, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the Common Market, what it is. Folks that are listening to this program, which is about arts and culture, might be a little bit surprised that we're talking about a corner store. Tell us a little bit about the the common market and what it's about. Yeah, it. Uh, I had that same experience once the the first one that I played in in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we walked in to set up for the night, and I said, "Are we playing in a grocery store?" Sure enough, about this time, the manager walks over and recognizes that hey, you guys are the band. Welcome, come over here in front of the milk. We'll set you up. Nobody buys milk at night, so this is where we set the bands up. And uh, so it is just a little corner store, convenience store that. You know, the old corner store that used to, you know, kids would go up and get penny candy, right? And hang out in their summer days and get pops and take their pop bottles back. I'd ran a music venue in downtown Muncie called Doc's Music Hall. And uh, after closing that and heading back down south to play along the coast of Carolina, I started really thinking about what would have made Doc's work because it was so important to the art and culture community of Muncie and what, you know, gave the, that platform, that music venue for local artists. And so as I looked at three or four places that were going well, what seemed to make a lot of sense that Muncie could have used was a common market because it wasn't completely dependent on being a music venue to make, you know, sustainability. And so that that's why you walk into uh, 
little convenience store, grocery store and see music and art and culture. And so, so that, that's kind of the, the short, long version of why you would be talking arts and culture in the little <laughs> local corner store, right? So now there's another side, though, of course, because we're sitting today in, in the, the store side. But there's another side to the common market. You want to talk a little bit about what you do there and how it reflect, relates to the arts community? Yeah, the um, we call it the Avondale Arts Co-op because, like I said, it, it's a conference room, uh, an art room, uh, a listening room. And um, it is it, the way the building is set up is separate kind of from the, the store side of it. But the idea is that it's just that it's a uh, it's an arts co-op where one night we may have live music play. We have Dr. John Peterson, you know, who uh, over at IU Ball and he comes here. He was the original owner of Doc's Music Hall downtown that I ran. On, on the other side, the grocery, the idea is that it helps make it sustainable. And so it's just the, the little corner store that. um Again, it, the way we look at it, if the corner store pays for the arts co-op, then there is a place for the local residents to come. And like I said, it may be dog playing one night. It may be yoga the next night, a paint and pint night. And so that's the other side of it is that the store really exists so it can help empower the arts and culture scene here, which is for me, the reason that I was able to last long enough to get on a stage is because I had this little place downtown Muncie I could go called Docks. And so that's kind of the idea is that there is a new generation coming up in Muncie that needs a place to go be bad at music long enough to be good. Hmm. Now, when when you talk about that, one of the things you've been working on lately is you've been working on like a recording studio and a concert sort of concert venue back there. Yeah. Um, what's the goal of that? What are you trying to accomplish with with the recording studio and having bands play in, in the other side of the common market? I have this... Uh, vision of and a dream and people when I tell them say, man, you are a dreamer, aren't you? And and that is true. Um, but I kind of think of Muncie as kind of maybe the Austin, Texas of the Midwest. Uh, I realize that's again quite a dream since that's the capital of Texas. But you know, it's a university town with a lot of culture and a very diverse culture, especially for Texas. You're right in the heart of Texas is this very kind of forward thinking, progressive city. You know, Austin, I, I feel like Muncie's the same way. So that that's the the goal, right? To to help make arts and culture in the Midwest, and so I think the studio itself should be the Muscle Shoals of the Midwest, and that some of the the great records that will be the you know the history of what makes music and art and culture here will be made right here in that back room, and then shared with the world. And long term, I would love that Muncie become a, a production powerhouse for the Midwest and students coming out of Ball State and local Muncie folks would work here at the studio. We would export media all over the world. That's a lofty goal, my friend. I, I, I get that a lot. <laughs> when, when I tell people, they say, wow, you, you are a dreamer. Yeah. Muscle Shoals. I mean, you know, legendary recording studio, obviously in Alabama. Yeah. So, so the, the plan here, of course, has kind of evolved over the years. And I know you and I have spoken before about sort of when you started, you had pretty modest, you know, hopes about yeah. what you're going to be able to do with the building. And of course, now, sometime later, it's kind of on the track of what you were hoping for it to be. So when you were starting and you were kind of struggling a little bit uh, with the common market, what kept you going? What made you stay with it? Um yeah, that's a great question. Raw stubbornness is, is, is a big part of it. 
Doc, who uh, like I said, owned Doc's Music Hall downtown. He's a local doctor and musician. He opened up for the Doors and Sonny and Cher in the 60s. And that was kind of why it's same thing. He started wanting to give back to the next generation. And Doc said what he said, Mike, you're probably one of the only people stubborn enough to have stuck with this long enough to get it. And I think that's part of it, right? Just one of those things of once you make your mind up not to quit. But the other thing is kind of like I, I've you and I have talked about it over the years here is that without places like this, there's not a place to go play and get started and make music. And without music venues, independent music venues, it's really hard for the next generation of artists to have a time and place to get better so they can go out and pursue their dream. And so I think just that always in mind that it, had it not been for people like Doc Peterson sticking with it long before I first stepped on the Doc stage, when it wasn't easy, when nobody believed in downtown Muncie, you know, kind of like we look at this now and it's just about 10 years to be an overnight success. So we started this in 2016. Nobody believed, especially in this part of town. But that was true of downtown Muncie when we started that in the early 2000s. Where there was three or four buildings that had business in them, 25 that didn't. And nobody really believed, but I watched downtown Muncie turn. So I think that had a lot to do with it is knowing that I'd seen the turn work and that it was just, you know, it was, I was seeing the same obstacles in just, a, you know, another little part of town. And so that helped because I'd watched it happen once. And, you know, I've, I think downtown development deserves a lot of credit, along with all the administrations of the la of the city of Muncie, the last four. And I'd worked with each of those mayors, you know, def different parties that there was a focus on downtown that was bipartisan and was all about, we need to make the, the heart of the city strong and then the rest of it can be strong. And I think just watching that work, it really gave me a belief that it's important what we're doing, right? We're not just, you know, down here doing it, that this is the next stage of making that long-term vision of Muncie. And so that helped a bunch. Now, if, if folks are listening to this and they want to figure out what's going on when something's happening at the common market, how do they find out about that? The easiest way is probably, you know, which is cliche, but pay attention to our social media at Muncie Common Market on Facebook and Instagram. Those are the two main ones we use. MuncieCommonMarket.com. You know, we'll get it there. That, that's probably it. If you really watch our social media, that is, you know, it's, it's one of the things as a startup right? That there's a, virtually been no money here for advertising, right? There's been no, there's not a budget per se. The, the budget is make sure the taxes and insurance and electric bill are paid. And so that that's the one step at a time, you know, the one recycled brick at a time part, but usually we keep those pretty up to date. So, yeah. well, thank you, Mike, for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Appreciate what you're doing at the common market and we hope that folks will check it out. Yeah, please do. I appreciate you coming down. That was IPR's Phil Hoffman talking with Mike Martin, owner of the Common Market in Muncie. One of the goals of our show is to connect audiences like you directly with artists especially those who choose to live and work in places that aren't typically looked at or seen as centers of culture. Elizabeth Gregory Wilder is one such artist. She's a playwright, and her numerous plays include Fresh Kills, The Flagmaker of Market Street, The Furniture of Home, White Lightning, and others, and they've been produced at the Royal Court in London 
Alabama Shakespeare Festival, Denver Center, Cleveland Playhouse, Kansas City Rep, Northlight, and many, many others. Her plays have been produced everywhere, but she chooses to make her home in Tennessee, where she is the Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at Suwannee, the University of the South. I spoke with Elizabeth about her career and why she chooses to make a home on the top of a mountain. Can you can you describe Swanee a little bit for our audience in case they're not familiar? So Swanee, Tennessee is this little hamlet um, on top of a mountain, actually technically the Cumberland Plateau, um, in between Chattanooga and Nashville in Tennessee. When you drive into Swanee, you go through these gates, uh, these big stone gates, and there's a sign that says you are now entering the domain. Um, so it feels a little bit like you're you're entering some sort of cult, and sometimes it feels <laughs> a little bit like a cult, um, but it is really just... Um, um, one of the most tranquil, peaceful places um, you can ever imagine. Um, the the domain, which is what it is referred to, um, is actually owned by um, the diocese, the Episcopal diocese. And so um, it's protected land. We have these wonderful hiking trails. Um, the university itself is modeled um, um, after Cambridge. And mm-hmm. okay. um, so everything here is built out of stone and uh, so the buildings just it looks like something you would see um, in an an old um, New England campus sure Um, so so uh, they call it the Hogwarts of the South if that of course Um, and one of the things that's very unique about Swanee is that um, we all wear teaching gowns so yes I've seen photos (laughs) Yeah, so when I teach, I, I wear a gown um, and the students wear gowns to class. Um, so they they earn their gowns based on their academic achievements. Um, and so that's, that's a big part of our tradition here. Um, and there's something that I really love about that because I think tradition is, there's something very theatrical about tradition. The, there is, you know, theater is a ritual and, um, and um, church is a ritual. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at, at how those two things intersect, you see that there, there are a lot of similarities there. Yeah. So the pageantry of some of our ceremonies here on campus feel very theatrical to me. So um, even if you're not someone who's particularly religious, I think that, um, you know, I, I find a lot of comfort in the predictability of those rituals. I love that you say that because I, when I often tell this, the story about how I got involved in theater, it was through church. I grew up in a um, tradition that had uh, a lot of, of rituals around, you know, Easter and Christmas and it just the performativity and the meaning that those events had were really what drew me into theater as as an art form. Um, did you move to Tennessee for the position for the job you currently have? Yes, yes, that's that's what brought me here. Um, I certainly, um, I certainly wouldn't have thought 15 years ago that I would be living on top of a mountain in Tennessee. Um, but you know, sometimes we we end up right where we're supposed to be, and um, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. It's been a, a wonderful place, actually, to be a writer and to be a parent. Um, it has given me 
the freedom to be the writer that I want to be while also the giving me the freedom to be the parent that I want to be. And I think that is a really hard balance to find in our business. Absolutely. And let I, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. So when you lived in New York, you lived there for 11 years. What was it like? What was what was your if, if you were to describe that experience that chapter of your life to somebody who's never been there before never spent an extensive amount of time in New York what would you how would you describe that to them so I'm originally from Mobile Alabama right down on the Gulf Coast I I actually lived on a houseboat on the on Dog River right off the Gulf of Mexico um, until I was about seven years old Um, and then um you know, I I feel like being Southern really shaped my identity as a writer and as a storyteller, even if I think most of what I write these days isn't necessarily rooted in the Southern experience. You know, sometimes I I revisit those stories, but but not all of my work is Southern. Um, But I, I moved to New York about a month before my 17th birthday. So I had a really interesting introduction to New York because, um, when I first moved to New York, I was only supposed to go for the summer. Um, my mother later told me that she knew I would never come home um, when she put me on the plane. Mothers mothers know these things sometimes. Um, but I, I was taken under the wing of um, a guy named Roger McFarlane, who was the executive director at Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS at the time. And he took me everywhere. I, You know, I was... 16 turning 17 and um you know he was taking me to broadway openings and weekends in the hamptons and he introduced me to larry kramer who gave me the best writing advice i've ever been given which was writing is like throwing up you've got to get it all out and clean it up later um and um it was just sort of a magical experience so um, i graduated from high school a year early and so i took what would have been my senior year of high school and um i i worked at the theater development fund during the day and i ushered for broadway shows at night and on the weekends and it was just sort of everything that like a nerdy theater kid could possibly want it was just magical Um, I got an agent um, because I went there to be an actor. Um, I was auditioning for things. I got a show. I got my equity card. I thought this is going to be easy, right? You did did all of it, didn't you? I did. I did all the things. I've literally never used my equity card again um, after that show. Um, You know, I went there to be an actor. I think I, I realized very quickly that I wanted to be an actor more than I wanted to do the work necessary to be a good actor. And, and that's probably a realization that more people need to have earlier in their lives and in their careers. Absolutely. Um, For me, that was my uh, first semester freshman year of college, actually. So, yes. yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing that happened that year was I got two free tickets to the Young Playwrights Festival at the Public Theater. And I went to see the show and I remember um, Madeline George had a play in that festival you know, and here's this kid who was like a year older than I was who had this play. And I remember thinking like, this is a, this is a play that like I could have written, like these are stories I could have told. And I think up until that point, um, you know, all the plays that I I had ever read mostly were the plays that were in the Mobile Public Library, which meant I thought that those were the people who could be playwrights. And suddenly 
I saw people who were my age and, and women who were writing plays and Wendy Wasserstein happened to be there that day for something. And, um, and I, I went up to her afterward and I sort of like spewed forth all of this like 17 year old enthusiasm. And she, she just looked at me and she took my hand and she said, you should go home and write a play. And I thought, well, Wendy Wasserstein told me I should write a play, so I should probably do that. But I didn't know how to write a play. So I, I bought a copy of the Sisters Rosenzweig and I started writing a play and I didn't know anything about the structure. So I basically just followed the structure of that play. Sure. Um, yeah. And and that's how, that's how I wrote my first play. Um, so that was just a really and I and then I was just hooked um, and I, I submitted this play to a a play festival in New York and it got selected and suddenly um, I had, you know, a Tony nominated actor who I had seen on Broadway doing a reading of my play. And I was like, this is awesome. Wow. Um, and I, you know, and if the first time the audience laughed at something I wrote, I just, you know, I was done. I was, I was, I was in, I was in it to win it. Yep. Um, and then I got a letter from my mother that said, enroll in college or come home. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I did. So I went to purchase college and I got a, a degree in, in women's studies and economics. Um, but I took my first playwriting class there with Jeffrey Sweet. And um, and I, I stayed in New York and I commuted back and forth. And Jeffrey Sweet and I would ride the train back to New York together. And and so I got sort of like a, a master class on the ride back with him every, you know, every week after class. And so um, I've just, you know, I've been writing plays ever since. Um, so, I, you know, I went to school and um, was writing plays and got my first little production in New York, a little equity showcase theater right after I graduated from undergrad. And um, I started applying for different summer programs, which is how I got introduced to Swanee. I, I did the Su Swanee Writers Conference twice. I see. Um, and so, and because I did the Swanee Writers Conference, someone here introduced me to the Ensemble Studio Theater, where I got into Youngblood, um, which is their incubator for writers under 30. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was there with Amy Fox and Jay Holtham and um Lloyd saw and just you know this just amazing community of young writers you know and we were you know we were putting on shows on the weekends and all working you know terrible day jobs and, sure. and it was just, yeah and you're you know, describing just, I, Elizabeth this story is is so similar to other stories I've heard in terms of how your network begins to to form and then blossom so I'm going to ask you a difficult question Yes. Could you have done any of that or come to the place that you are in in your life right now without having thrown it all into into the the pot and just moved to New York? You know, I that's a that's a that is a really good question. Um, you know, I think everyone really has their own journey. Um, I have no regrets about my time spent in New York. I think I realized fairly quickly that I was not necessarily a New York writer. And, you know, and it took me a while to kind of figure that out. And I think part of it was, you know, I started getting work produced outside of New York and I was having more success getting work produced outside of New York. Um, you know, when I left New York, I actually left New York to go work in television Mm -hmm. um, which was a whole other experience. But, you know, I, I do think that there is a way to have a career 
um, and to build a career without necessarily starting um, in New York or LA or Chicago. Um, I think the things that I learned by being a part of those communities was incredibly invaluable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also feel like there are cities outside of those three cities mm-hmm. that have cultivated a theater culture that if you are able and willing to invest in those communities, you can create the same experiences there. You know, this summer I went to Atlanta for a long weekend and saw three shows in two days and, and amazing theater. It's excellent Um, theater down there in Atlanta. It really is. Yeah. You know, Atlanta um, has great theater, St. Louis, Austin, you know, there are all of these other places where, we're seeing really good theater being made. You know, so much of what we talk about when we talk about the business of the theater is is how do we make a living in the theater? And, you know, it is hard to find professional work and, and, and ways to support yourself um, as a playwright um, or an actor in some of these smaller markets but I feel like it's all still, it's all still relative, right? You know, mm-hmm. the smaller markets also have lower costs of living. Um, smaller communities, you know, smaller audiences, smaller, smaller yeah. communities. Yeah. yeah. So you, you're going to have to have that other job more than likely. Mm-hmm. But here's the other thing. And this is what I also learned about the joys of regional theater. You know, I've had plays done in New York or like I had a show done in San Francisco that did very well critically. But, you know, I, I can have a show done in a s- smaller theater in a bigger city and maybe make $1,000 or $2,000 off of it. Or I can have a play done at a major regional theater and have many more people see it and get a check for $20,000 or $40,000. <laughs> You know, and so financially, a lot of times building a career in regional theater can actually be more financially profitable. Sure, sure. And the it's you know, it's the old adage of do you want to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a in a massive pond? And I I think that one of the things that struck me as I was listening to your to your amazing story about how you've built your career is this sense of hindsight because I do the same thing as I look back on the, the the plays I've written, where they've been produced, the successes and all of that is that everybody does have their own journey. And I think there's some definite advantages to working in a number of different communities, a number of different types of places. You know, New York is not Indianapolis, is not San Francisco, and they all have their own unique um, uh, audiences and and community projects and things like that. So, it what I find really exciting, I think, about where we are right now, is that communities are able to connect with each other through some of the technology that we have. You can kind of live anywhere and have plays done in other places you've never been. And I think oh, that yeah. that's a that is a, an interesting dynamic that probably 
didn't even exist when we were both starting out, right? That you had to know people who then knew people who would hand your play to somebody and it would get produced, you know, two blocks over. So it's, it, it's I, I think the world is very different than when you and I were both sort of first starting out. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and the way the way people network, like just things like the the National New Play Network and being able to, you know, put scripts up there. I mean, I, you know, I've gotten productions because someone read a script that I posted. Right. Sometimes it feels like you're just submitting things out into a, a void. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm always telling my students once they start submitting their work, like, so much of it is also just a numbers game. Right. And and you just have to keep putting it out there. I mean, you know, I, I remember when I was first starting out, it was also, it was expensive to submit your work because you had to mail a hard copy. Sometimes multiple hard copies. Yeah, yeah so I- then you're, you're printing, you know, you're printing your your scripts and then you have to put it in a priority mail envelope and you've got to pay the $4 postage, which, you know, back when it was only $4 and, you know, (laughs) but that was one of the things I loved about doing temp work is like every time I had a temp gig, I would go like run multiple copies of my scripts um, on their copy machines because I couldn't afford to, you know, go to, you know, Kinko's and have my stuff printed. Yeah. Hopefully Um, the, hopefully the places you worked for aren't listening, but that's, uh, it was many years ago, so I'm sure it's fine. I like to think of it as corporate support of the arts. There you, know? you go. That's amazing. Yes. I love and that. it's just so much easier to get your work out there now. And, um, you know, the, the other thing that whether you're an artist or not, um, that we all have to keep in mind is I think we all have our own definition of success. And for some people, that's going to be like, I have to have it that I have to have that show in New York. I have to have a show on Broadway or I have to have a show at Playwrights Horizons. And like, we would all love to have that, um, obviously. But I think I I got to a place in my life where I was able to sort of step back and go, you know, I have built relationships with some really wonderful theaters. I've had my plays produced at some wonderful theaters. I have had my work produced consistently. I work consistently. And for me, that feels like success. And, um, you know, and I'm able to be a parent and I'm able to own a house and I have a retirement plan, you know, (laughs) all of these things that as you get older, you know, and your priorities shift. um, So I think that that's a big reason why we're seeing more and more kids stay young artists. I don't want to call them kids um, staying in, in their communities or going to these other regional communities and investing in those communities where it is a little more manageable financially to have the career that you want and also be able to, you know, afford to survive. I find that, that my, goal, I think, as as an educator and as a, I'll just say, older member of the, the, the theater community is to assure younger artists that I know that it is okay. You know, it's okay to set up shop in Indianapolis or Nashville or Minneapolis or Atlanta, which are you know, these, these communities, I think, are really exploding with some amazing work. 
And mm-hmm. so my hope is as we continue to figure out the the role that the arts play in our societies as they evolve and change that these these communities will become even more and more to you know to use the term legitimate as places to to begin a career and to build a career so i'm very hopeful i think that you know the journey that that you went on and that i went on uh, is certainly important and got us to the the places that we are right now as as artists and i i don't think those journeys need to be duplicated Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, and, and I love that I've had all of those experiences. And, and and the thing is, is by having all of those experiences, especially now that I'm teaching, I'm able to bring those experiences and those relationships that I've built into the classroom. And, and that only helps my students. Um, you know, and the industry has changed a lot. And, and I do work really hard to try to continue to maintain and to build new relationships so that um, I know what's going on in the industry so that as I prepare my students to go out into the world, they know what to expect um, as well. That becomes a responsibility, I think, for all of us to determine and perhaps even redefine what makes a piece of art, whether that's a play or uh, a, a piece of fine art or a sculpture or music, what what we think of as legitimate and good and moving and powerful and that the success that that an artist has in in Muncie or Swanee or (laughs) you know that this success is is a true and valid success definitely I agree completely that was our conversation with playwright Elizabeth Gregory Wilder Now it's time for the first installment of a segment we're calling, What Are You Working On? Where we ask creative folks about, what are you working on? Hi, my name is Levi Rinker, and I am the economic development specialist for the city of Anderson. And my focus is on downtown revitalization strategies uh, is one hat that I wear. The other hat, I'm a, I guess, co-founder and uh, art director at a local artist cooperative that we found uh, downtown. So you're kind of uh, driving the revitalization beat in downtown Anderson. Yeah, right. I put on my tap shoes and do a little dance, maybe uh, put on my cheerleading skirt, go team, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, you co-founded this co-op with your partner, uh, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, Sonia Caldwell and I, we both started it, mm, goodness, almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, I wanted to know what are what are some of the things that you do in the co-op? So the co-op's name is A-Town Center. You know, it's kind of generic, specific, specific for Anderson. We call it A-Town, right? But uh, generic <laughs> in the sense that it's just uh, a general model that uh, people can follow to kind of help with revitalization strategies. But every year we gift out uh, five to seven artist in residency spots. Uh, We have studios in the basement where the artists can come and work 24-7. They have access. And in turn, uh, for their rent, they help out with programming. So uh, every month we'll be doing a wine and canvas class, a cookies and canvas class for the kids, Mm -hmm. uh, poetry night, uh, open mic, uh, singer-songwriter series, 
um, movie series, you know, all types of fun events. So if, um, yeah, they've got something they want to test and try out, we kind of create the space and the atmosphere and, you know, and help them engage the community to buy into their, their artwork. That's great. It sounds like you have something for everybody in your community. And okay, I have a burning question. You said you call yeah. your center a town center. So do insiders in Indianapolis or excuse me, do insiders in Anderson call Anderson a town like Chicago, Chi town? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> okay. That's yeah. awesome. You heard it right here. We have a scoop from <laughs> Levi Rinker. <laughs> well, Levi, I also wanted to find out we're interested in what you're working on right now. In, in addition to all of those things. Yeah. So, uh, Part of it, you know, I, well, back where you and I met, Kara, is uh, when we were doing the Walking Man project. I, I was at Ball yeah. State. And, um, you know, the big community collaborative art exhibitions have always been fun and big for me. And so that's what I'm working on now. We just finished one. I mean, you guys did Dave's Alley. You relit that yeah. and put some, uh, you know, uh, more feet on the ground there downtown. Uh, we did something very similar. Uh, Artist Alley, we kind of took in a a little dark alleyway between the Paramount Theater and the Union Building, one of the kind of historic um, attractions we have downtown that's doing all types of shows. And uh, I built two archways on the east and west side, hung some ornamental lighting, and then we've got 10 uh, artworks on displays, four by eight panels, uh, all done by local artists. Every year we'll swap out a new show. So uh, just finished constructing that. And then um, I didn't do any of the panels myself. I kind of gave those opportunities to other artists. But yeah, um, yeah, that's what I just finished and now working on a, another one. So it's fun. That's excellent. So these panels, are they like relief? Are they flat paint? Could you describe a little bit about it? Yeah. I mean, originally the concept was just, you know, a four by eight treated plywood board and paint on it. But again, you know, you give artists a, a few specs and parameters and, <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to bend it. And yeah, so we have pieces that, you know, break the plane, more three-dimensional um, sculpturesque style as well. So I'm looking forward to next year. Uh, we'll have uh, some woodworking artists um, hang some objects off the wall as well. So looking forward to seeing how it grows outside of the two-dimensional plane. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, um, I definitely want to get to Anderson to take a look at those. And um, you say they're swapped out annually. So, yeah, uh, yeah, we've time. got our own Facebook page for it, Anderson Artist Alley. And uh, we kind of host the link on our website at uh, atowncenter.org. Well, um, you had said there was something else you were working on, too. What was that? Did you want to share? Oh, that? you know, I always toy around whether it's, you know, photographs or painting or installation art but um yeah working on some sculpture right now back in the studio so banging some metal doing some welding you know fun things oh that's awesome i just wondered like um sometimes well is there anything specifically that you do to get into a creative mindset you know i i i do drywall and um, when I get so frustrated that I don't have a creative outlet, it, you know, it kind of bubbles up from within, <laughs> you know, and yeah, you, you get the proverbial itch and you just have to either disconnect and go create or, or not. So, um, 
I can completely understand that. It's like the blankness of the drywall and the the repetitive nature just <laughs> drives you to something else, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I I think I already know I know the answer to this, but like are you inspired by your community? Do you find where you live to be one of your main inspirations? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. In fact, um, what was most inspiring, um, we did a crowdfunding campaign to raise the funds for this artist alley. So um, in total, you know, with the improvements and uh, continual programming, we raised enough funds to not only knock out, you know, the, the first big chunk, um, but to be able to host this and reoccur this for the next nine years. So um, it, it was a program through Patronicity. I don't know if you're familiar with Indiana Housing Community Development Authority and, and their programs, but it's a, a crowdfunding campaign that takes federal state matching dollars for programming and then kind of partners with it, a, like the Kickstarter campaign, if you will, um, mm -hmm. to where the community will get more bang for their buck. So uh, it's a private um, public kind of match. So um, I was uh, just floored with the amount of support that we got uh, from that campaign. So that's, yeah, it was really encouraging. Oh, that's excellent. Um you know, it's really wonderful when you can get your community inspired and uh, where you can make where you live someplace that's a joy to be. And um, I just really appreciate you talking to us today. Um, I, I was wondering if you could um, let the people know exactly where this um, work is in the alley Again. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, it's right downtown Anderson, right next to the Paramount Theater. So if you're going down Meridian Street, you're right there, um, right between 11th and 12th Street. Um, and then the A-Town Center, we're right there on 12th Street. So just a uh, half a block away from us. Excellent. Well, Levi, thank you so much for being here with us today. And we really appreciate learning a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah. Come and visit anytime. The alley's open 24-7. You know, we're <laughs> always open on first Fridays and doing crazy events. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. But we, keep weird, we keep weird artist hours at the gallery. So <laughs> that's just, excellent. Just got a knot card. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I totally forgot. Can you just tell us a little bit about first Friday? Because we've got uh, first Thursday here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a very similar thing that, that it, you know, the inspiration is just to get people out walking, you know, the mm -hmm. walkability aspect of it, you know, not only partnering with all the arts organizations like the Anderson Museum of Art, the Anderson Young Ballet Theater, Anderson Main Stage Theater, the Young Ballet or uh, Park Place Arts. I mean, but with Creatures of Habit, the Brewing Company, the distillery at Oakley Brothers, the Cultured Urban Winery. You know, it's um, get out, have fun, you know, have a few treats and um, yeah, just support the downtown arts group. So um, that's what we do for First Friday, um, every First Friday, five to eight. There's a lot of arts and culture in Anderson, Indiana. So go check it out. <laughs> Thank you so yeah. much, Levi. Thank you, Kara. Well, Kara, we did it. We did. We reached the end of our first episode. How do you feel? Yay. I feel very excited. Well, hopefully you feel inspired to take in a few 
arts activities here in the area, and we have a few to choose from. Um, First off, we have uh, three uh, theater events happening on campus at Ball State. First is The Unexpected Guest by Agatha Christie. That is in University Theater, uh, February 9th through the 16th. Our Cave series uh, is in the Cave Theater, also on campus, and this is featuring works by Tennessee Williams, Carol Churchill, and Sam Shepard, three greats. Those plays run February 17th through the 24th, and then in Strother Studio Theater, we have the play Gloria by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, and tickets for all of those can be purchased online or by calling the University Theater Box Office at 765-285-8749 or going to boxoffice at bsu.edu. There is so much going on. That is wonderful. Playing at the Eagles Theater in Wabash, Indiana, February 14th is Michael Palisak, comedian. And he says there's nothing harder than parenting, being a new parent. Oh, you bet. Been there, done that. <laughs> So maybe you should take your significant other and have a laugh on Valentine's Day. Also, if you're interested, Sons of Maestro, a musical duo, will be at the Eagles Theater in Wabash, Indiana, and they will be playing on February 8th. Tickets are $29. They play 10 genres of music. They use the violin instead of their voices. And they play everything from ACDC to Wycliffe Jean. Oh, I'm interested. (laughs) You had me at ACDC and violins. (laughs) Uh, Again, for you theater lovers and our producer Luke freaked out when uh, he heard this was happening. The play that goes wrong is happening at Muncie Civic. Uh, February 2nd through the 8th, or excuse me, I'm sorry, through the 11th, February 2nd through the 11th. And tickets can be purchased online or by calling the Muncie Civic Box Office at 288-PLAY, P-L-A-Y. Get out and play. Pop of Culture on IPR is made possible in part by the Indiana Arts Commission, a state agency, the IAC's arts partner for East Central Indiana, the Community Foundation of Randolph County, the National Endowment for the Arts, a federal agency, and by Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. And that's our show. Pop of Culture is produced by Luke Jones. Special thanks this week to Sean Ashcraft, Phil Hoffman, Heather Hines, Michelle Kinsey, Tracy Lauk, Angie Rapp, Margaret Reeder, and Stephanie Weekman. Your hosts this week were Jen Blackmer and me, Kara Duquette. Pop of Culture is a production of Indiana Public Radio on the beautiful campus of Ball State University.